0: Welcome to Career Day
1: on the MarTech Podcast. Today, we're going to learn about the skills accumulated and lessons learned from a great marketer throughout the various stops on his career. Joining us for Career Day is an author, speaker, podcaster, and serial marketer. Doug Morneau is the CMO of Steingate, which is an agency with experience in designing online promotional strategies, web development, and optimizing SEO and PPC. Doug is also the host of the Real Marketing, Real Fast podcast which is a great show that I was happy to be a guest on a couple of weeks ago. Okay, on with the show. Here's my interview with Doug Morneau, host of the Real Marketing Real Fast podcast and CMO of Steingate. Doug, welcome to the MarTech podcast.
2: Hey, thanks, Ben. I really appreciate you inviting me on your show.
1: Always a pleasure to have another podcaster here. Great to talk to a great marketer. Excited to hear about your career. Let's start off at the beginning. How the heck did you get into marketing?
2: Kind of by accident. I mean, I grew up in a household that wasn't really focused on entrepreneur and uh, self-employment, but my grandfather had had quite a successful career and had exited from several businesses and retired in his mid-30s. So from that, I took some inspiration, saw what he did, and I thought, hey, that's the kind of lifestyle that I want. And I just read a book that said, hey, if you help enough people get what they want, you'll get what you want. And I thought, that sounds simple enough. I guess I'll start my own company.
1: So did you retire in your mid thirties too? And if so, what the heck do you do with that much time left?
2: (laughs) No, I haven't retired in my mid thirties, And neither did he. He actually went back to work and set up several more companies.
1: Sounded too good to be true.
2: Yeah. You know, I think that once you get the bug and you have fun doing this, I mean, it's not really work. It really becomes pleasure.
1: That's the thing with entrepreneurship. It's as much a passion as it is a job.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I love what I do. I, you know, some days I think, wow, this is what I get paid to do. This is so exciting.
1: So you had a role model and a template to follow from your early days. Your grandfather had some entrepreneurial experience. What about other than retiring at in your 30s? What about his experience did you like and, and gravitate towards?
2: I just liked some of the scale of the businesses that he had built. He had built a manufacturing company and a company making paint. And they had sold this for, you know, at that time when I was young, seven, eight figure exits out of, you know, one out of each company. And I went, that's really cool. I would like to do that. I'd like to create something. But at that point, I really didn't know what it was. And I assumed that I would follow in his steps and get into manufacturing in some way. And after going down that road a little bit, I thought, no, this is not the type of business I want to be in.
1: So you start off in manufacturing and you want to go down an entrepreneurial path. Eventually, you lead into marketing. When did you start focusing on helping people build brands, figuring out marketing strategies?
2: Well, it was when I was doing some work in a totally different sector. I was doing some work in the mining sector, and I saw these guys were struggling with their marketing. And to me, it didn't really make sense that I thought, well, really, all you need to do is you're working with investors. You need to go talk to people. So from what I thought was kind of common sense was, hey, get the microfiche, print the list, highlight all the VPs and start calling them till they see you. I thought that made sense, but apparently most people don't like to do that or don't do that. And so I started to see some early success. And from there, it just kind of snowballed. People said, hey, I don't want to be involved in a project unless you bring this guy on. So I found that the investors and brokers were basically dictating to their clients that, hey, if you want to work with me, you need to work with him too.
1: So early on in your career, you get some experience. It sounds like it was mostly a sales role where you're doing some cold calling, but you're making introductions and doing business development. Do you consider sales and business development to be one and the same? How do you think about that role? And where did you go from there?
2: I think that there's so much jargon in the industry. So I would just call it sales. The reality is that nothing happens in the world today in commerce unless somebody buys or somebody sells something. So we can dress it up and call it business development. But at the end of the day, that's really what it is. It's getting in front of your target audience, finding what their needs are, see if your product or service matches that, and then in an exchange of services and money.
1: So you're a self-starter and early in your career, you decide you're just going to go start making the cold calls, drumming up business. You see some success, you build some relationships. Where did that push you? How did your career develop beyond that experience?
2: Well, I just fell in love with it. So I just became a student of everything I could get my hands on to read courses, seminars, webinars, whatever was available. I was just soaking it up to kind of see what the best practices were. And recently we just heard of the passing of Dan Kennedy. I was an early student of his and bought all his materials, so binders and cassette tapes before there were CDs, and just really dug into that and fell in love with it because they got really good results. It was very aggressive. It was very in-your-face. It was very focused. It was very measurable. So I just started taking that to the marketplace saying, here's a different way of generating leads and converting sales. And really, that was it. And My goal at that point was, hey, I'd like to build my business so it's big enough that I can travel around the world to hear the smartest people and learn from them.
1: So for the Gen Ys, the Millennials, the Gen Zs, tell us a little bit about Dan Kennedy and who is that and what is the message?
2: Dan Kenny was a a direct response marketer, and he basically had a framework that he would share that was at that point heavily dependent on direct mail, which eventually he moved to online. But he was just a guru around motivating people to take action. And one of his stories was, you need to think about the guy sitting on the couch with a beer watching the football game. And if he's opening his mail while he's watching the game and he reads your letter, he needs to be so motivated that he'll shut off the TV, put on his boots, and go outside in the snowstorm to go to your business and buy. So it was really about being really direct, providing value, but also creating urgency. And I really liked that approach. And we had some huge success in direct mail using that exact approach.
1: So the interesting thing to me is you referenced that you were building your business and, you know, you had this company that you're working with and mining and following this sort of Dan Kennedy methodology, but it seems like you've been building your business for a long time, as opposed to working for other people's business. Did you have more career experience where you were working for other companies or have you always been independent? Well, I did
2: have some experience, but it was totally unrelated. When I was going into manufacturing, I actually worked in a trade and I thought I need to understand how to work with the guys in the shop before I could have a shop. So I was going through my apprenticeship. I was taking night school class in business. So taking a night school class in marketing. I took the securities course to be a stockbroker. So I was taking all this and what I realized was I didn't fit in. My conversation, what I was interested in the lunchroom, talking to the guys there was totally different. So when my apprenticeship was coming near the end, the day I got my papers, I quit, which totally freaked out my family and my in-laws because I was leaving a good union job to go off and do. They didn't understand what.
1: So you, you get all the way through the schooling, you figure out what you're going to do for a trade, you get certified and you say, I'm glad I got this degree. I'm going to go do something totally different what was it about the path that scared you away? Or what was it about the path that you ended up going down that attracted you?
2: I think what scared me away was it it just looked like people, at least the people I was working with in that point, they didn't seem overly motivated. They seemed very focused on doing the least amount that they could. And they had been in a job for a long time and complained profusely about being there. I thought, Man, this just doesn't sound like anybody here is excited. And, you know, they say that you are, you know, uh, the result of the five closest people you hang around. I thought, I don't want to hang around with these people. So I want to go find smarter people who uh, have bigger goals and have ambition and want to do something.
1: And I want to hang around them. So talk to me about the business that you're running today. I've mentioned that you were independent, Uh, you're a man of many interests, you're a speaker, you're a podcaster, you're a marketing consultant. When did you start running your business and how did that business develop over the years?
2: I started running the business just about 35 years ago. And what I'd share with the millennials, I mean, I've got kids and grandkids now. So I've got a couple, at least in that category, is, you know, just don't be afraid to go and try stuff. I mean, I left the steel industry. I went into the mining industry, which I knew nothing about. So my thinking was that what people need is they need someone that's got a good attitude, that's willing to learn and work hard, because there's lots of people that have lots of talent that won't do anything. So I was that guy, I showed up and people just gave me work and gave me contracts. So that's kind of how I evolved. And the other thing I would suggest is don't be afraid to ask, don't ask, you don't get. So I just kept asking for bigger projects, bigger projects, bigger projects. And what I found was, as I was starting to build my consulting company, was the lineup was really long for people who wanted to be at the low end of the food chain. And when I started, I took a check from anyone I'd say that could fog a mirror and write a check. But as you get a bit more mature in your business, you realize that's not a good business model because some people that clearly you shouldn't work with, I didn't want to work with. So as my business grew, I would look at problems that people had and say, this is what you need to do. And I would ask for more budget. And over and over, it happened that
1: they just grew and grew and grew. So it sounds like you were able to work your way out of the ATM stage, which is the anything for money, into being more selective. When you felt more secure in your business and you had enough pipeline, how did you figure out who you wanted to work with, or was there specific projects that you like to take on?
2: I guess part of it was I was looking at where did I have the most fun, and where did I make the most money? And I had gone to a friend of mine who was quite successful and made a lot of money, and I had gone to pitch him to, for a donation for a, a not-for-profit I was volunteering with. And after taking him for lunch for three times, he basically said no. He said, hey, why don't you do some work in the public company space? And that's when I got into that space and just realized that I could do the same amount of work I do for a private company, but they would just pay more. So for me, it was just simple economics. If I can do this over here for $5,000, I can do it over there for fifteen, and the amount of work's the same, why wouldn't I get paid more? So that was my progression. And then my big quantum leap was when the U.S. economy crashed. That was the best thing that ever happened to my business because all my clients were in the financial services space.
1: What sticks out to me is that when I ask you about what you're doing in your business, you're talking about the business development process and that you were able to pick what type of clients you're doing your targeting, you're moving from anybody that can write you a check and now you're working with publicly traded companies and you're aggressive in your willingness to go work for the biggest companies and ask for more budget. A special thanks to our presenting sponsor Mutinex, ready to take your team from I think to I know. Talk to me about what you're actually delivering. What are the types of marketing problems that you're solving? And how did you develop those skills?
2: Initially, I started working in just strictly email. So these guys were working with newsletter writers and editors and analysts that would write reports on companies and their companies and market sectors. And what they needed was distribution. So at that point, I was just simply using the skills I developed early on for renting direct mail lists. And I started renting email lists. But I started with a pretty healthy budget. I mean, the first clients, we started about $70,000 a week. So like I said, let's move my skills from direct mail to email. Still the same principle. We're renting somebody else's data. They're the ones who are sending out my client's message. And we got really good results in terms of inquiries and leads and help these companies and these venture capital guys raise capital that way. So that was the problem we were solving was they need to raise capital and they need to get in front of an audience and they don't have you know 10 years to do it.
1: It's interesting. I've interviewed a couple of experienced marketers like yourself who lived through the transition from the pre-digital era to the digital revolution and had to make the transition from, well, back then we were doing direct mail and TV advertising, and it was a little hard to track everything. And when email came along, we started focusing on that How do you perceive the difference between the non-digital channels and then things like email and now we get into social media marketing? Do you see a big difference in how those channels operate or are they all the same and just a different format of delivering the same message?
2: I look at it from, you know, where's your customer? So regardless of what channel they're in, and I still love direct mail. One of my favorite books that I had read was Blue Ocean Strategy. So it's like, where's the blue ocean? So everybody right now is fighting in Facebook. So why don't you go someplace else? So I still will use direct mail and look at text messaging now. Text messaging for the last five years, no one's talked about. Now you got guys like Gary Vee that are crushing it with his wine club and selling out entire lines of wine every single day of the week. So it's like, oh, text messaging is good. Well, people seem to follow the shiny object. So I think in terms of answering your question, that these tactics still work depending on where your audience is. And if you can figure out where your audience is, then use the tactic that will get in front of them. Not everybody's on Facebook. Not everyone's on Instagram. Not everyone's using TikTok. So figure out where they are. If you need to send them a letter, then send them a letter. And what you'll find is they get a lot less letters during the day than they get emails.
1: It's interesting. The thing that stays the same is understanding your targeting. No matter what vehicle you're using as a marketing message delivery system, you need to make sure that you're reaching the right person. And then you get into the idea of like, what's the competition? Everybody is moving towards these digital channels they are getting more expensive with more competition. And now we're seeing channels like direct mail and billboards that can now use digital technology. They're kind of rising like the Phoenix and coming back into popularity As your business has grown, you mentioned that you started to see some success when the economy crashed. What did you start to do? And as you scaled, how did you expand your offering?
2: The way I scaled was quite simple. I mean, it was a pretty ugly time for everyone worldwide. So a lot of my competitors just disappeared. So my clients came to me and they said, hey, we still have the same needs. How are we going to resolve this? I said, well, let me go talk to the media guys that we're already buying media from. And let's see if we can get better pricing because they don't want to lose this as a client either. So I did that. In a lot of cases, we reduced our costs by 20, 30, 40%. And then I went back to the client and they said, well, what should we do? I said, well, you should double your budget. So I'm going to reduce your media costs. And I think you should spend twice as much. So we moved people from like 70,000 a week to like 140 and 150. And they went, wow, that really worked. What should I do now? I said, double it again. So then we moved them you know, to 300,000 a week, some clients 400,000 a week. And they were just crushing it and they were super happy. So for me, it was just, they said, will it work? I said, I think so. So I just take a risk and I look at what might be not be obvious to everyone else. Say, hey, let's just give it a try. And if it works, it works. And it worked really well.
1: It's interesting. You know, I struggle with this myself with some of the marketing channels for the Martech podcast, which is understanding the limits and capacity of a marketing channel. When you get a channel that you know that's successful and you want to invest and you want to double down, every time you spend more on a channel, there seems to be more incremental risk. I want to double the amount that we're putting into our podcast efforts, but I'm a little nervous because if I put more money into it and the channel can't necessarily handle that much bandwidth, I'm burning my capital. How do you think about finding the limits of a marketing channel?
2: Well, it all comes back to just analytics. You need to look at the data. So I was recently working on a campaign where we were running this campaign on Facebook. And what we found was that we couldn't scale it beyond a certain point. It didn't matter if we put more money in. The only thing that happened is our cost of acquisition went up and our quality went down. So you can test that limit by looking at your analytics, looking at your conversions and looking at your numbers. So what I tend to do is I tend to look for a multi-channel approach. I mean, you mentioned direct mail a minute ago, so there's intentional direct mail, meaning that when someone goes to the MarTech podcast website, it can grab their IP, grab their physical address and send a postcard tomorrow. So I would take the money if you hit the limit of your channel and I would look for another channel. If you look at email, for example, Fast Company Magazine has a crazy open rate of over 60% and they have like half a million people social media examiner has 350,000 subscribers. Again, you could introduce your podcast to 350,000 people in one day in that channel, and then leverage what happens with them coming to your landing page and sending intentional direct mail and using Facebook retargeting and Google retargeting. So to your point, you can't put all your money into one media. I think that's a risk for obvious reasons. But I would look for other complementary channels. So you have a different way to get in front of your consumer, maybe in a different platform. So they're different frame of mind. They open their mail. They're one frame of mind. They're working. They open their business email. They're thinking one way. They go on their social channels. They're probably not thinking about business as much. So I would look at expanding the number of channels opposed to just pouring everything into one channel because you're absolutely right. We've definitely hit, hit limits with channels in the past.
1: So as you think about this channel expansion, it makes a lot of sense where you need to differentiate and, and broaden the number of marketing channels that you're in to gain exposures, reach new audiences. And I think it's something that you've done well in your business. As I mentioned in the introduction, you're not only a marketing consultant, you also are a speaker and a podcast host. Talk to me about why you decided to move beyond just supporting your consulting clients into content creation and being a public speaker.
2: I really enjoyed presenting to groups. So early on in my career, I, I volunteered with a self-employment program. So I got a chance every five weeks to sit down with 25 or 30 entrepreneurs starting a business and spend five hours in a kind of a engaging lecture with them to help them with their marketing. And that just really filled me up. I like that. So I thought I need to do more of that. So along that process, I thought, well, what's the next logical step? I should probably write a book. I should probably niche down, pick one of the talents that I have. So I niched down into the email space, wrote a book on email marketing, And then from there, I said, I should start a podcast because it just kind of made sense to again, build my audience. I needed to get access to people for my book. So I started interviewing all the people in the email space. And I was looking for my podcast in terms of monetization strategy was looking to build relationship with really smart people. So it all comes back to the people. So it wasn't for me anyhow, it wasn't for about selling ads and getting sponsorship, it was about having a chance to talk to someone like you and to meet you and experience you and your business. And then I could make a decision if I thought you might be a good fit to be a vendor for me or a vendor for my clients. So for me, it's really a long form interview process looking for the smartest vendors I can find to introduce and to buy from.
1: Oh, man. Had I known it was an interview, I probably would have prepped for the interview a little bit more. (laughs) You did really well. I hope I held my own. (laughs) So you're using your podcast not necessarily as a lead generation service for your clients, but you're looking at it as a way to find vendors to provide additional value for the people that you're already working with.
2: Absolutely. Because my thinking is this, if my client comes to me and says, Hey, Doug, we should do X. If they know what that X is, then I'm really not providing any value for them. I mean, they might as well just go find the lowest cost operator and just pay them to execute it. So even the years that I would go to the DMA, I mean, the DMA was a big investment. It was about 10 grand. It was about a week. And people go, how much business do you get from? I said, none. They went, why do you go? I said, I'm looking for vendors, concepts and ideas. I want to see what the next opportunity is in tech marketing or direct mail or the way they write the copy or the packaging. I want to see what the big airlines are doing. I want to see what everybody's doing so I can find the next opportunity to go back, test it with my own credit card. If it works, then share it with my clients
1: it's an interesting approach and in philosophy it's one of the things that i've enjoyed about doing the martech podcast is that i've been able to hear from industry experts across a wide variety of different channels and hopefully everybody else that's listening has felt the same way where understanding how everything from B2B to B2C, multiple different channels, multiple different strategies for marketing can help you think about marketing from multiple different perspectives. It makes you a better marketer. Having gone through the process of developing your podcast, having been a guest speaker, running a consulting, what's the future for your business? Are you going to continue being a consultant and trying to find new vendors and new marketing strategies to bring the table? Or is there an end goal for you?
2: Well, yes and no. So it's a two-part answer. So um, I've just written my second book. It's a book on health and wellness. And I've been working with my wife, who's a content writer, to develop that. And we're going to launch that as a a membership website. And I think to answer your question as I will probably take less and less consulting clients as I move on. Because for me, the frustration, if I can say there is a frustration in my business, it's the fact that there's so much information everywhere that I end up spending half my time arm wrestling people saying, hey, I know that so-and-so on this podcast or this video or Gary V said that, but it's not a fit for your business. So I would seriously just rather spend my time and my money looking for vendors and hiring them and building my own brands and selling digital products and have less time having those types of conversations with clients because if they're not ready to change, then um, you know I might be working with them too early.
1: So as you think back on your career, and you've gone from following in your grandfather's footsteps to working in the trades and deciding to go a different direction, developing your own consulting business, expanding it to be a content business and being a speaker, for people that are entrepreneurial like you that are early on their career, what advice do you have for them to follow in footsteps like yours?
2: Well, this might sound a bit odd being that I'm a marketing guy, but I would say the biggest mistakes that I've ever made really were choosing poorly when you want to choose a lawyer or an account or not having one early enough. And then realizing that as your business scales, as nice as the contractors you may have, whether it goes beyond that, might be your web dev guys, you're going to probably need to change them out. So you're going to get to a point where you're going to outgrow the people that are giving you advice. And you need to realize that and you need to make that decision. And if you don't, it could have dire consequences as you grow your business. When you move from a five-figure business to a six-figure business, from six to seven to seven to eight, some things need to change. And the people around you need to change. The people you hang out with need to change. So it's not that I looked at people and said, hey, you're not at the same level that I am, so I don't want to hang out with you. It's like, hey, I'm paying you for a service because this is the service you offer, And we've kind of reached the upper limits of what you can do. So I need to find the next level person to bring in. So I would say, don't be afraid to upscale the consultants, contractors, staff that you're working with as your business grows to make sure that you've got the very best people that are just at a level above you. You don't want people that are at the same level. They need to be a level or more above that have had the experience, have gone through the challenges that you're going to have as you grow your business.
1: I think that's good advice. I think that you need to make sure that you're always developing the capabilities for your business beyond just the ones that you have and sometimes your team might not be able to keep pace and your vendors might not be able to keep pace and you need to be open and honest about who's working with you and what value they're providing. Doug, appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate you walking us through your stories. Any any last comments? How can people get in touch with you and where can they reach out?
2: Just one I make one suggestion. There's a really great book out there called The Quantum Leap Strategy. And one of the questions in the book is, what if all the barriers were imaginary? So as you're making decisions as an entrepreneur to do something, don't go with common sense. Common sense will get you common results. Just what if the barriers were imaginary and go for something big, go for a 10 times your result, not just
1: 10%. All right. Well, Doug, thanks for being our guest. And that wraps up this episode of the MarTech Podcast. Thanks to Doug Morneau, host of Real Marketing Real Fast, for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Doug, you can click on the link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can send him a tweet. His handle is Doug Morneau, D-O-U-G-M-O-R-N-E-A-U, or you can visit his company's website, which is DougMorneau.com. Just one link I want to tell you about in our show notes. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while you were listening, don't worry about it. Just head over to martechpod.com where we have summaries of all of our episodes, contact information for our guests, you can sign up for our newsletter, and you can also send us your topic suggestions or your marketing questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. My handle is Ben J benjshap, B-E-N-J-S-H-A-P on LinkedIn and on Twitter. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want a daily stream of marketing and technology knowledge in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit the subscribe button in your podcast app and check back with us tomorrow morning. All right, that's it for today. But until next time, my advice is to just focus on keeping your customers happy.